Welcome to What on Earth, an AI group podcast unpacking the key issues of the minerals, energy and supply chain sections of the transitioning economy. Welcome back to another episode of What on Earth. I'm James Scotland, the General Manager of Supply Chain for the Australian Industry Group. And each episode, we look at the broader strategic issues facing business owners and operators as Australia transitions to a post-carbon, net-zero carbon emissions future. We look at the issues from an industry and business perspective, and we try to provide you with the strategic and business insights into them. The changes are big and complex, uh, and accurately responding to the changes is critically important for business survival. Helping me unpack these issues each week are my two amigos, firstly, Tenet Reid, the Principal Advisor for National Policy for Environment and Energy at the Australian Industry Group. Hello, Tenet. G'day. And Paul Hodson, the Principal Consultant of Paul Hodson Advisory uh, and a Board Member and Businessman. Uh, Paul's well known to many of you as a business and industry commentator with a passion for innovation and business improvement. Hello, Paul. Hi, James. Hi, Tim. Good to be back. Lots going on as always. Um, We should probably uh, start quickly. I want to talk about the industry as a whole and what's going on in the transition, try and get a a big picture look at it, but probably best to start with uh, a a quick catch-up. What's been happening? Hello, Tenet. What's happening in your world? So there's been, as always, quite a lot going on. Uh, I've been uh, focused on the uh, the release in Victoria of the independent advice on their 2035 emissions target, which uh, I was uh, on the expert panel that uh, that made the recommendations there. Uh, I've been uh, in a lot of discussions about. Uh, Australia's potential responses to the US Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which continues to exercise a lot of minds. I had some great recent discussions about hydrogen and uh, how how real are the opportunities there and and what different forms might they take. Uh, And uh, I've been having a lot of chats about the um, the upcoming review of whether Australia might adopt a carbon border adjustment mechanism, uh, adding a uh, domestic carbon price equivalent onto imports and maybe rebating carbon price paid to some exports. Uh, the review of that's going to begin in uh, sometime in the second half of this year, run for 12 months. Uh, it had a few million dollars uh, to run the review um, uh, allocated in the recent budget. And that's going to be a really significant review, not just because I am tragically obsessed with CBAMs, but because uh, the issue of preserving competitiveness and reconciling competitiveness with ever more challenging climate targets is going to remain a really significant one. The safeguard mechanism, uh, which uh, an initial wave of changes uh, to to which was uh, recently agreed, uh, that has measures that moderate competitive impacts in the next several years, but are very much a stopgap rather than a permanent solution. So uh, you can expect to hear more about CBAM uh, over the next 12 to 18 months. Be warned. Well, let's talk about a few of those things um, shortly. 
been busy, as always, not hang- hanging around in the hammock. <laughs> uh, and Paul, what have you been up to? Have you been hanging around in the hammock? Uh, no, no hammock time for me, unfortunately. Um, but uh, look, I uh, it, it's been interesting. I think over the last few weeks, we've uh, there was a little bit of quietness, I think, in the lead up to the federal budget. But I think uh, there were some interesting uh, announcements in the federal budget in the lead up to the federal budget, and that's now being added to by uh, the states um, and territories as they do their budgets and as they make their announcements. Uh, so it's been a busy time. I was at the Queensland uh, Climate and Energy Forum last Friday, uh, a CEDAR event, uh, their first climate and energy forum. Really well attended, uh, great presentations, and the uh, Queensland Deputy Premier announced the new industries development program, uh, which uh, is really interesting and, and really focused on that whole supply chain of renewables and critical minerals, biofuels, um, uh, hydrogen and a lot of that that sort of new economy, new energy economy um, development. Um, so looking at kind of, I guess, how it supports other initiatives, including their energy and jobs plan. Um, this week's Australian Renewable Energy uh, Renewable Fuels Week in Brisbane. Um, and so the Queensland government's announced a, uh, a, a partnership with Qantas on uh, sustainable aviation fuels. Um, the Australian Hydrogen Conference is on this week as well. Um, in Brisbane, so there's um, there's a lot going on, um, but it's kind of it feels like all the pieces of the puzzle might be coming together, uh, which I think is uh, is really exciting. And did I see that you were speaking at a conference in Malaysia, or was that virtual? Well, it was virtual. Unfortunately, I couldn't get to KL yesterday, but I did I did speak on the uh, importance of international collaboration in building the green hydrogen economy. Uh, to uh, the uh, ASEAN Green Hydrogen Conference yesterday, um, which was which was great, uh, a, a great event. Um, I, I met with the with an ASEAN hydrogen delegation in Canberra in February. Uh, lots of great opportunities, I think, between Australia and ASEAN in this area. I think we're seeing that from the federal government uh, a real push as well, a real interest. So um, yeah, so it was uh, it was an honour to be able to to present and contribute to that, that, that event. Yeah, that's exciting. We haven't heard much about ASEAN lately, but, uh, but nice to get the international collaboration. And all the things that the two of you mentioned, I'd like to pick up in this, uh, in this episode. I was recently uh, talking to uh, a couple of AR group members, and uh, one was an electrical contractor. We are talking about a number of different things, and in ter- talking about the transition, uh, he said to me, gee, I'd love to see some figures. I'd like someone to f- work out what sort of electricity load we're going to have when we go to electric vehicles and electric businesses, et cetera. And I said to him, well, that's all, all been done. I mean, it's not, of course, people work that out. And he was quite surprised. And, and, and I said to him, this is not a thought bubble. This is not something that we're thinking about doing. Australia is transitioning and all that information is available. A couple of days later, I was talking to uh, another senior executive in a, a multi-state business and I was talking about electric vehicles. And his belief was, well, there's no need to worry about that because it's not going to happen in Australia. And I said, it is going to happen. Have a look at this um, press release by the CEO of Ford Motor Company saying that they are stopping making internal combustion engines along with the rest of the industry. They're just stopping. It's no longer Hmm. what they do. And he said, well, that's no good if they don't have uh, uh, plans to, you know, have charges. 
And I said, well, okay, have a look at BP. BP, the CEO of BP Worldwide, is talking about how they're changing their service stations over to renewable fuels. Not only uh, electricity, but also hydrogen, biomass, biogas. They're trying to figure out what the future is. My point is, is that it seems to, to many, uh, there's, there's still a, a strong cachet of, of business owners and business operators who don't seem to understand that this is not a kind of a, uh, a thought bubble or something we should do, but there, there actually is a distinct and definite move to transition to the post-carbon economy. So let's talk about that. Perhaps the place to start would be in the recent budget, the recent federal government budget, because, you know, that's a big driver in the transition. Um, do you want to give us a quick summary from, we're not economists, we're, we're, we're you know, different people. <laughs> um, so this is not economic analysis, but from a, a environment and energy policy analysis, what was in the what was in the federal budget to to manage the transition? So there were a lot of in- interesting things in the federal budget. The biggest ticket items for energy transition included the two billion dollar hydrogen Head Start program, which is production subsidies for renewable hydrogen. Uh, $2 billion over, we don't know how long, but I would guess uh, 15 years. Uh, And there's a lot that's not known about that program, Uh, exactly how it will be structured, what uh, the requirements will be for qualifying for it around the uh, degree of cleanliness of the electricity that goes into the hydrogen, how new the associated generation capacity will have to be. I would guess that that turns into a contracts for difference program uh, where projects bid at the strike price at which uh, they believe they will be viable. They receive contracts if they are bidding the lowest strike price and if what they're able to sell the hydrogen for to an off-taker is below the strike price, the federal government will top it up to the strike price. That's probably how it works out. Uh, They hope that two to three flagship projects with uh, up to a gigawatt of electrolyzers in total will uh, qualify under this program. They think they'll do the first substantial payouts in 2026-27. And this is is a substantial program by recent Australian standards, uh, but it's also, you know, uh, an answer to the hundred, maybe hundreds of billions of US dollars in uh, tax, uncapped uh, tax credits uh, for clean hydrogen in the US Inflation Reduction Act. So this is enough maybe to keep Australia's hand in. There's some other uh, elements in there around uh, upgrading buildings, uh, homes. There's a billion dollars of finance for upgrading energy efficiency and electrification upgrades to homes across Australia and $300 million for uh, similar upgrades to public housing, uh, plus however much the states can be persuaded to kick in uh, for the same purpose. Uh, and then there's some numbers that are not available in the budget, but we can guess that they're big, uh, including for the uh, capacity investment scheme. This is the federal government uh, contracts, contracts for difference, most likely, uh, process with uh, firmed renewables aiming to get six gigawatts of new firm renewable capacity 
into the uh, both the national electricity market and uh, the west and the north uh, in order to uh, ensure that there's a, a higher level of confidence in reliability uh, as uh, old uh, coal-fired generation and some gas-fired generation retires. Government's not saying exactly how much it's going to be spending under those contracts. The numbers are not for publication, but they did clarify that they'll be uh, doing auctions for these contracts in South Australia and Victoria first, uh, on top of what the New South Wales government has already been doing in its own right uh, in the long-term energy services agreements it's been awarding in that state, which it, it did the first uh, one and a half gigawatts of um, of contract awards uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, there's a, that's a lot. There's a lot in there, isn't there? And and we're starting to talk about how make how the transition. It's not just a transition, but how we make it transitional, um, effective. That we keep making money, we keep surviving. You know, things are affordable. Uh, that there's a political aspect to it as much as a um, environmental aspect. How did you see the? Uh, uh, the federal budget, Paul, what comes out at you as being the, the transition factors? Yeah, look, I think the Hydrogen Head Start program is good. Um, I there's a couple there's a couple of question marks I have around it. One is, uh, you know, uh, Tennant talked about the hundreds of billions of dollars potentially in subsidies that are coming from places like the US. Um, we're not going to be able to compete with raw financial incentives. Um, so is $2 billion going to make much of a difference? There's about $300 billion of announced hydrogen projects in Australia. So in that context, $2 billion is a pretty small production subsidy on that. Um, but maybe it does kickstart a couple of the larger ones, gets them to FID, um, which helps to scale the supply chain, which helps to bring down other costs and, and other things. Um, I think that's that's one of the challenges. I think the other one is that things are moving so quickly that by the time something like the Hydrogen Head Start program gets established, has have things moved on? Um, the Green Hydrogen Hubs, for example, is a half a billion dollar government initiative. Um, how does that now sit with the Hydrogen Head Start program? Um, how does it sit with the Arena 10 megawatt hydrogen you know, pilot projects from about two or three years ago. So it's kind of, there's a still a little bit of, I think of a joined up and, and, and potentially what we really need to see, and maybe we'll see this in the refresh national hydrogen strategy, is not just a vision and what we think the future will look like, but maybe a 10 year certainty around how this is gonna scale. Um, and not, not just what we can do in terms of throwing money at it, but what we can do in terms of making it easier for people to invest uh, cutting out time and cutting out costs, uh, looking at regulatory fast tracking, uh, looking at integration of various aspects, uh, funding supporting initiatives that bring people together, um, making it an easy place to invest um, by doing some of the work um, that might offset some of the costs. And therefore, you know, we don't have to throw uh, production subsidies at projects uh, we can we can make them more attractive in other ways. So I think that's really important. The other thing I saw in the budget was the industry growth program. Um, James, you and I all know the old uh, Enterprise Connect that we were both part of, which uh, became an entrepreneurs program, which has finished now. But it's good to see the industry growth program is going to be established. It's going to be a supporting mechanism for those manufacturers 
particularly that are going to be aiming for the National Reconstruction Fund. So it's good to see pipeline initiatives put in place to support some of these other ones. Um, and I'm still really excited as an economic development practitioner uh, for the net zero authority and how that's going to work as well. Um, that was announced pre-budget. And there was also a whole range of things in the budget that had been announced previously, like the Powering Australia Industry Growth Centre, uh, like a lot of work in the transmission infrastructure, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, a lot of the ingredients are in place, the architecture's in place now. Um, and I think that's uh, that's really exciting and it's starting to be leveraged now by uh, state governments. Uh, I noticed the Victorian government has put in place a number of manufacturing initiatives, uh, some of those quite uh, uh, openly about supporting Victorian companies to get money out of the National Reconstruction Fund, uh, which from a state government's perspective is a really clever move, I think, to use small amounts of money to leverage larger amounts of money from the federal government into the state. I want to talk about Victoria because uh, Tennant's been doing a bit of work there. But uh, before we do, you said uh, things are going fast, things are moving fast, which tends to suggest it's more than just the architecture that's being put in place. Actually, the industries are starting to get a bit of uh, bit of momentum. Uh, is that right? Um, absolutely. I, I think we are moving this. And to, to your point of the discussion you've had recently with a couple of AI group members, um, this is this is this is as much certainty as there, there is in the energy transition. We are heading down this path, right? Uh, we we have as close to a consensus as you're ever going to get yeah. uh, across yeah. industry, across government, across community um, to to drive ahead with the energy transition. I think one of the things that's really interesting, particularly for the SMEs and for the the businesses and others out there going, well, I'm watching this stuff. What do I do? How do I get involved? Um, all of these are enablers that are being put in place, right? So the Hydrogen Head Start Program, the National Reconstruction Fund, uh, the Net Zero Authority, the Powering Australia Industry Growth Centre, the Industry Growth Program, all the incentives as a small business uh, energy uh, incentive uh, that's been put in place. Um, these things mean nothing if no one applies. So it actually requires entrepreneurs, it requires businesses to actually roll up the sleeves and do things and then look to see what government's putting in place that can support them on that journey. Um, government's not doing this stuff. If no one applies for any of these initiatives, uh, they don't happen. Um, so I think it's, uh, uh, I, I would say it's really clear now that we're heading in a direction um, and that uh, while, and government's not really in the driver's seat, it's business that's gonna be in the driver's seat. Um, and government's still working out how best to incentivize, support, develop, uh, encourage those business, that business investment into driving an energy transition that delivers our future economic and social prosperity and, and uh, uh, addresses the, the impacts of climate change. It's interesting what you're saying, because if I summarise what you're saying, we've made the decision to transition to a post-carbon uh, uh, world. The government has said, OK, we'll set up a whole bunch of <laughs> accessible money for you so you can go to a post-carbon world, but now we need business people to understand that it's time to get going. Tenet, this is your area of passion. <laughs> How do you see it? Well, so I will agree in part and disagree in part. I think the destination that we're all trying to get to is very clear. I think that uh, the specific route that we will wind up taking from here to there 
has still got some important uncertainties in it. And if we think about the the hydrogen opportunities in particular, because um, they, they get a lot of focus and they take a lot of doing, we think about the uncertainties involved there. Uh, one vision that's out there uh, is that in 2050 or 2060 or 2040, pick a, pick a year, Australia, regions that currently produce coal and gas for export will be producing green hydrogen for export in equal or greater value. Um, and that's a, that's a vision that, that is, is quite powerful and animating for some people. Do we think that that specifically is very likely to come true? Well, there's a bunch of reasons why it might not, uh, including we don't know how fast the world will wind up heading for net zero. Uh, the uh, implemented policies are weaker than the midterm targets, which are weaker than the long-term targets, which are themselves more consistent with two degrees than 1.5 degrees. So that's one issue. Two is that hydrogen competes with a lot of other solutions in the many different contexts uh, where it might be used. And we don't yet know in which ones it's going to be uh, dominant. It's competing with electrification in different forms, with carbon capture, utilisation and storage, uh, with biofuels and various forms of bioenergy. And uh, then we've got the uncertainty about however much demand there is, how much of that hydrogen is going to be traded across international borders? Uh, there are significant costs involved in uh, the conversions and the transport and the reconversions that may be involved, depending on how hydrogen is being transported. And then for all that, assume there is a large global demand and a lot of it is traded, we don't know how competitive Australia will wind up being. Uh, there are a lot of countries that want to be the Saudi Arabia of hydrogen, including Saudi Arabia. So uh, you put all that together and we should definitely be acting, uh, but we're going to need to be quite flexible depending on how all those uncertainties pan out. Uh, and uh, the uh, for my money... Uh, metaphorically, because I'm not, I'm not directly investing in anything. Uh, the the Ross Garno vision of onshore processing of uh, minerals and energy intensive manufacture of clean metals uh, is more convincing, if if still challenging in all kinds of ways to achieve, but more convincing than the replace current energy exports one for one with clean energy exports uh, version because the, the capital savings uh, involved in uh, avoiding all of the energy that you would lose in the export process and just making stuff here, those savings are so enormous uh, that they're persuasive even given the very great uh, trade and diplomatic and security complexities involved in places like Japan and Korea and maybe China outsourcing significant chunks of their current metals uh, production processes to Australia. Uh, it's not easy to make that happen, but the underlying logic seems quite strong. So everything I've just said could be totally wrong. Uh, the point is we're trying to get to that net zero destination 
uh, and navigating some some clouds and fog banks in between here and there. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I 100% agree with you, Tennant. I mean, the uh, the destination, I think, is clear, um, and we're, that's probably been clear since the net zero announcements of about 18 months ago. Um, mm. the, the, the way we get there is going to be different. I mean, I, I would be as bold to say that we're not, no one's going to be exporting as much green hydrogen as they do fossil fuels now uh, in the future. Mm. That, that would be my sense. And if you look at it, uh, if I look at it in really simplistic terms, we're looking at replacing coal, oil and gas um, uh, in terms of fossil fuels. Um, electricity is taking out thermal coal, um, uh, uh, renewables, uh, wind and solar predominantly are going to take out uh, thermal coal. Um, if we look at uh, uh, re renewables are also going to take out some oil um, in mobility, right? Um, and they're going to take out some gas. Um, but uh, even the Net Zero Australia work still looked at the need for potentially gas peakers um, uh, within the electricity system under a Net Zero scenario. Um, if we look at oil and gas, I mean, oil, um, some will be replaced by renewables, but we are going to still need chemicals in some ways, uh, whether it's hydrogen or whether it's something else uh, to offset some of those applications of oil, and particularly into plastics and polymers and into into other things. Um, in gas, we're looking at green hydrogen into things like fertilizers, uh, ammonia and others. Um, but but you know, I think if I was if I was looking at things, I would say there's a couple of things I would be doing as a business owner. One is the energy efficiency and the time shifting of my energy usage. Um, and then I would be investing in renewable generation where I can. Um, uh, and storage, if I can, as well. So that they're the they're the kind of certainties in some ways. And I'm not giving any financial advice or, or uh, investment advice. Uh, but important I note. Important note. A disclaimer. I'm sure AI Group will add lots of disclaimers there. But you know, as a as a manufacturer or as a, a supply chain company, if you've got a permanent site uh, or you've or you've got a site, you can actually generate elect electricity. Uh, you can actually use some yourself. You can time shift. You can look at uh, the uh, the equipment. You can get now subsidies from the Australian government uh, to invest in uh, better energy uh, efficient technology. Um, and I'd be looking at things like um, uh, storage as well. Things like green hydrogen that like will come from that, will come from renewables. Um, so the investment in renewables is a precursor for the green hydrogen sector anyway. So in Australia, we really need to get on and be building our capacity for renewable energy generation, um, regardless of which particular journey we might end up going on to the destination. If I'm a, uh, if I'm a business uh, person that is running BP, I work out that I need to start thinking about non uh, non-petrol st service stations and if I'm the CEO of Ford I work out that I need to make uh, nine internal combustion engine cars from now on but what about Australian businesses Paul you mentioned net zero authority what's that is that some sort of repository of of all knowledge I said repository it wasn't uh, um, Tony Abbott and may end up being there's two things I, I mentioned um, one's net zero Australia which is some a comprehensive amount of work that's been done modeling off uh, or, or replicating some of the work that was done by the Net Zero America team out of Princeton. Um, so that's been done in Australia. Uh, the final modeling has been released 
Um, the next piece of work is the mobilization work, which is going to be really interesting. Um, that's netzeroaustralia.net.au. I'm sure you can put the link in the podcast. Um, huge amounts of modeling work, a uh, whole bunch of uh, reports that underpin that. There's some summary slides. There's a whole range of things looking at different options, different scenarios. Um, and it's a really, really clever piece of work uh, that's been done by a number of universities in Australia um, and other parties. Um, the other one is the Net Zero Authority, which is being set up really as a, uh, an energy transition authority uh, for regions and particularly, I think, for the four coal regions of uh, major coal regions of Australia, the Latrobe Valley, the Hunter Valley, the Bowen Basin and Collie, um, to mm. look at the skills transition, to look at uh, manufacturing and economic development, um, but I suspect social license and a whole range of things that will actually help transition those economies um, uh, and what it, what it will do and how it will operate um, is still, I suspect the detail is still to be either decided or to be announced. Is that the best place for business people to go though? Is that, is that where you should sort of start your search on, on answers to these many opportunities? Uh, I wouldn't start with the net, the net zero authority or the net zero Australia. Net zero yeah, Australia, yeah, I think, is worth it's worth going and having a look. If people don't believe some of this stuff's been done, and it's been done by others as well. I know the the Centre for New Energy Technologies in in Victoria, for example, has done uh, a lot of work on, um, and Tennant could probably give you a list of reports. Um, uh, he he could, <laughs> and he's probably written most of them or been a co-author of most of them anyway, right? So there's been lots <laughs> and lots of work done around uh, around what are the challenges, what are the options, what are the scenarios, how you know where where might this work? Uh, but Net Zero Australia has done some great work on where you know they've really thought through mm. where we would be generating, how we'd be distributing it, how we would store it, where would where would it where would it best fits um, and what, what the different scenarios might look like. Um, it's a really clever work and it's a, I, I, you know, I think it gives me great optimism that we are, we do have strong foundations in place now to make decisions about where we go, even though there is uncertainty ahead. Um, if, we, if we're aiming for a destination, we've got, we've got a lot of evidence and modeling at our fingertips now. Well, you're the fond of all knowledge, Tenet, as according to uh, <laughs> to Paul's kind words. What did, what did you have to say? Oh, look, I, I do think the Net Zero Australia project is as good a bit of modelling as you'll find in this area, which you know is a double-edged compliment because every piece of modelling can be questioned in different ways, and there are there are elements of this that you'd argue with. For instance, all but one of its modelled scenarios are. Uh, requiring a one-for-one replacement of fossil energy exports with clean energy exports, uh, which is the reason why the uh, amount of renewable energy development required in it is so eye-wateringly colossal, like more than three terawatts of uh, generation capacity. And for for those playing at home, uh, Australia currently has uh, a little over 80 gigawatts of all forms of generation capacity combined. So uh, going from 80 giga to 3 tera is a big step. Uh, But a lot of that is needed because of the exporting energy rather than exporting energy intensive products. They did do a sensitivity looking at onshoring of production 
uh, instead of exporting uh, everything as energy. And that that's really a very valuable sensitivity because it does corroborate the logic of uh, all the, the capital savings involved. But I, I certainly agree with the broader point that the uh, the most obvious questions about the transition, how are we going to handle the overall energy demand and the peak demand from uh, electric vehicles or how are we going to manage in um, still days in winter? Um, these questions have been examined quite a lot. And while I wouldn't say that they are definitively solved problems, they're all clearly capable of solution. It's just a matter of uh, will we put in place the uh, the market rules and incentives, the uh, pricing structures and the infrastructure so that people can charge their cars at times that create value for all energy users rather than radically adding to network costs. Are we going to put in place uh, the... Um, both the uh, demand response, the short duration storage, the long duration storage, and the rarely used backup generation or backup resources like uh, gas peakers today, but hydrogen peakers tomorrow that will deal with uh, rare periods of extended low renewables. Uh, I, I think that we've gone, we've got more than enough of the, uh, the number crunching uh, to uh, illustrate how those problems uh, could evolve and how we could respond to them. And th there is a lot of activity going on in actually implementing solutions. Uh, we, uh, we just need to get on and do it. Yeah, I found it an interesting question when this uh, fellow was chatting to me. Uh, when, you know, my, I guess one of my comments was, do you really think that the people who make electricity now, who are the generators, have not thought about what demand they're going to need in the future? I mean, they, they make their money this way. Of course, they've done extensive planning on it. We could go two ways. We could talk about Victoria and what they're doing and what the states are doing. But I thought we might go bigger first. Let's go global. In the rest of the world, have they got plans in place that are much more integrated than ours? My gut feeling is perhaps tenant EU's got an integrated implementation plan rather than just the the infrastructure plan or the architecture that Paul was talking about in Australia? So it depends on which part of the, uh, it's, it's weirdly for responding to a question about integrated planning, but it depends on which part of the transition you're focused on. If you're looking at electricity sector transition, in some ways Australia is leading the world. I mean, we are uh, a, a test bed for very high renewable penetration systems that are not heavily interconnected to uh, other other systems with with different um, generation mixes. Uh, and so what is being learned in South Australia especially, but increasingly throughout the country uh, around you know, the extreme duck curve or uh, minimum demand challenges that arise with lots of rooftop solar, uh, we are at the forefront there. When it comes to uh, industrial transition, to transport transition, to uh, the... Um, the, the transition of heat, uh, we are not at the forefront. 
to say the least. And so uh, Europe, yes, is um, you know a, a complex and imperfect place in all kinds of ways, but uh, they are grappling with these issues. They are uh, developing uh, not just plans, but uh, very uh, chunky uh, sticks and carrots in policy in order to drive uh, dramatic change in uh, industrial energy use and uh, in uh, heating uh, of all sorts. Uh, and of course, in transport, uh, phase outs of internal combustion engine vehicles uh, in the mid 2030s, uh, very challenging emissions requirements uh, for um, the new vehicle fleet uh, on the way to that. Uh, so, I wouldn't say that anybody in the world has the whole picture solved, that they've they've tied up uh, energy transition in a bow, uh, and at sometimes very ambitious jurisdictions uh, find that uh, it's easier to make a commitment than to implement the commitment. Maybe everybody finds that out, actually. Uh, but we've got a lot to learn. Uh, and uh, and follow or improve on uh, beyond the electricity sector. I think. I think everyone agrees that the uh, the U.S. politics is an interesting uh, dynamic place. Uh, but you hear a lot of commentary. I think uh, President Biden said it uh, that they are using the transition as a as a vehicle to reindustrialize. Um, mm. They see it as a real opportunity to build their economy. What about Asia, Paul? You mentioned ASEAN before. Uh, do you see evidence of of broad-based structures in place to implement the change, or are they where we are at, still trying to put it all together? Look, I agree with Tennant. I mean, it really depends on which way you're looking at it. But also, um, I think it's fair to say, and this, this should be either comforting or alarming for people listening to the podcast, that no one actually knows what that transition will look like for them, for their economy, for their business, uh, for their region. Um, uh, it, it's great to have a destination in mind, but there is going to be lots of uh, windy paths, perhaps some uh, some uh, some dead ends in that energy transition on the way through. And I think working together um, is going to be really critical to that. So, um, I, you know, Japan's doing a significant amount. China's getting on and doing a lot, particularly with electric vehicles. And in fact, I think. Uh, in Australia, I think within, uh, well, even now, I think we're starting to see the Chinese electric vehicle brands starting to uh, race up the and try and uh, and try and mm -hmm. uh, chase Tesla uh, up the ranks in Australia. And it won't be uh, it won't be long, I think, before the majority of our new cars in Australia will be Chinese um, as well. So there's 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 lots going on. But is anyone really? Has anyone really got their, you know, their finger on the pulse and have actually worked out the magic, the magic formula for for getting to net zero? I would say no. Um, I think mm. in Australia, I, you know, I noticed the uh, the Indian Prime Minister was here. Uh, uh, we, I think, India is going to be really interesting. India is now the most populous country in the world. Um, it's got the largest workforce, um, somewhere between nine hundred million and a billion people in the workforce over the next decade. Um, I think um, I think Asia is going to be really interesting. I think it's a great opportunity for us to um, uh, to cement that. In fact, I was uh, I did a bit of a fan piece on LinkedIn. Uh, uh, one of my uh, through my career, Professor Ross Garno, uh, when I started doing international business at Griffith University in 1989. 
um, part of our required reading was Ross Garno's Asia and uh, Australia and the Northeast Asian ascendancy, um, and uh, and I think that relationship for Australia is uh, is really critical, and it's great to see us building stronger relationships with ASEAN um, and with India as well as our, our typical uh, or our, our traditional Northeast Asian um, uh, customers: Korea, Japan, and uh, and China. So. Uh, but I don't think anyone's got this sorted out. And uh, hey, if we can sort it out together, suppliers, uh, customers, uh, enablers, then I think we're going to be in a much better position. We can defray some of the costs and risks. Um, and, um, and I think that collaboration will work really well. Well, let's go, uh, let's go local just to wrap this up. Uh, we keep talking about Victoria because they did have a report that I think, Tenet, you worked on. And let's see what they're saying. I think it's something like the Victoria's... 2035 climate action target driving growth is that the the title something like that yeah and, and what's it about does that have any more clarity than what Paul's saying I think he's right I think I think no one knows where we end up here but that's the exciting part for an entrepreneur yes well the Victorian government has an obligation under its climate change act to make a decision every few years about uh, adding on an emissions target uh, five years out from its existing emissions target, and they have to get independent advice to inform that decision. Uh, so this time, the decision was about 2035. They already had a 2030 target of a 45 to 50% emissions cut off 2005 levels. And the independent panel that advised them uh, included uh, me uh, in my uh, personal capacity uh, as uh uh, one of the three panellists. Tenet Reid himself. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and the panel advised, in the end, uh, an 80% emissions reduction target for 2035, which is a big number. And the government adopted uh, a target of 75 to 80% which is still a big number. Wow, 75% in 10, 12 years. Yeah, that's right, in 12 years. Now, uh, we are already significantly below uh, 2005 levels and uh, we, we will be, uh, even in the absence of new policy, seeing um, additional declines uh, below those levels. Uh, coal-fired, brown coal-fired electricity generation is a large chunk of Victoria's emissions profile. And those power stations are going to be closing, but uh, achieving a target of that scale is is a big challenge. The reasons for that recommendation, uh, I mean, there were a number of them, but they included that it is looking at the science and what is uh, what is just mathematically required for a plausible. Uh, target towards or plausible pathway towards one and a half degrees of global warming. Uh, it's hard to escape numbers of the order of 80% by 2035. We see that there are uh, a, a number of opportunities to reduce emissions that, while we shouldn't underestimate their difficulty, are... Uh, clearly there to be implemented, whether that is replacing a lot of bulk electricity with renewables, uh, replacing a lot of uh, light, shorter distance road transportation with electromobility, uh, replacing a lot of low temperature heat 
uh, currently uh, produced through natural gas with uh, electrified appliances, maybe some contribution from renewable gases, uh, and some potential to uh, start cutting agricultural emissions through feed supplements to those uh, livestock that are easiest to get supplements to. So not rangeland beef uh, grazed sheep, but uh, dairy cattle, uh, where you can give them a supplement two or three times a day when they come in for milking. By contrast, there are a bunch of things that ultimately we will need to resolve that look harder, look significantly harder today. So very high grade industrial heat, very long distance or very heavy transportation, those rangeland grazed animals. Uh, and so what we do if we go harder sooner on the opportunities that as much doing as they will take look quite tractable is we leave ourselves more space, more time, more room to deal with the harder stuff over a longer period. Uh, so uh, that's that's the logic, really. There, there's some other important elements in there, including uh, the very positive uh, research that has been done to better understand technological learning rates and uh, the, the fact that we can expect some technologies to get radically cheaper with continued strong deployment of those technologies globally. Uh, wind and solar have those characteristics, but so do uh, many battery uh, technologies. Uh, it looks like uh, electrolysis of hydrogen uh, has a significant learning rate. Uh, and so uh, to some extent, uh, the, the cost is cheaper uh, in the end if you go harder earlier. Uh, certainly that's true of the world. Uh, and Australia and Victoria can contribute to that. Uh, they, they can't make it all happen by themselves. So there's a lot of recommendations in there around those nearer term opportunities. Uh, but there's no doubt there is a lot for Victoria to do towards these targets. And personally, I think that the the uh, most uh, urgent and, and delicate challenge is going to be accelerating change in natural gas use in Victoria uh, because... Uh, where there are millions of households with gas appliances in Victoria uh, achieving this level of change, whether that is to uh, replace those appliances with uh, induction stoves and heat pump hot water and so on, or to make those appliances 100% hydrogen ready, which seems less likely but is an alternative pathway, to do either of those things in 12 years is going to take some aggressive action starting pretty much now. Well, we've talked about that, uh, I think, previously. If you're going to transfer hundreds of thousands of houses in 12 years, you, start, you need to start changing hundreds of houses every single day, and, and we're not ready yes. for that. Paul, did you have a comment before we sort of try and wrap it up? No, I you know, agree, agree with all that. And I think uh, the, the same applies in mobility, right? So I think Australia's got one of the oldest fleets of cars in the world. And I yes. think it's about 12 years. Yep. Um, and so actually, even if we started selling 100% new EVs now, it would probably take another 12 years before internal combustion engines left 
left our roads, right? Yeah. So, um, so this is this is the nature mm. of a transition, mm. right? It would be, it you know, as I probably said before, it'd be beautiful if we could kind of close down the energy system for five years, put out a out to lunch, major renovations happening, and we could just let it happen. But we we still need to use what we've got every day. Uh, and the challenges, and and I think the complexity of that integration challenge, and why no one's got it sorted out, is because there are so many components uh, to this puzzle uh, that we're trying to achieve. Energy is almost ubiquitous. It 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 is it underpins every uh, every industry, every community, every house, um, every school, every hospital. Um, it's a it's a really important part, and so uh, its tentacles go in so many different directions that uh, it it requires a collaborative effort. But it's going to be uncertain, um, and it does require people trying to encourage each other to join them on that journey. I think, um, and I you know so that's the other thing you know that I would I would recommend to to listeners is to you know to reach out partners, suppliers, enablers, government, others. Uh, look at what other people are doing, um, how you might be able to support them, how you might be able to be their customer, their partner, uh, their supplier. Um, even at an early stage, building those early relationships can pay off big time in the future uh, just by being the site of a pilot or just you know, encouraging one of your suppliers you know, to try something a bit different uh, with you. might actually lead to um, some new ideas, uh, some new insights uh, for you and your business. And I think, uh, uh, you know, getting getting out there and rolling up the sleeves, I think is uh, a really important thing to do. Thanks, guys. That's fantastic. I, I think, you know, the, the overriding lesson is that carbon and energy are deeply embedded in all of our lifestyles, our businesses, our economy, our, our, our communities. And we need to transition out of that and transitioning out of that is happening there are there are many things in place there is good support from the government if uh, you uh, are ready to start transitioning uh, you just need to figure out what what your plans are but do it fast because it's all happening fast and the other aspect from today's conversation is that it's happening all around the world in states uh, in federal and in, in global it's happening around you so if you're planning on, <laughs> on trading with anyone at all in the future you better start uh, thinking about how your business fits in the post Carbon. Well, what on earth is happening? Well, on earth, there's a lot happening. It's been fun, guys. Uh, we shall go Indeed. now. See you in a month, uh, Tennant and Paul. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you very much, James and Tennant. Enjoy the conversation. All right. Have a good month. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.